Hey, my name's Jeremy, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at Shelter Cove. And I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in with us today. I firmly believe you're going to be encouraged, you're going to be inspired, but most of all, that God's going to do something through this message that's going to move you closer to Jesus. Thanks again for tuning in. Welcome, everybody. If you've got your Bibles, do me a favor, grab them, open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. While you're turning to 1 Peter 4, I want to tell you about something in life that I absolutely love. This is one of life's small little pleasures and joys for me. I love when a movie pleasantly catches you by surprise. Like I love when, when a movie is so well acted, it is so well written out that it's kind of leading you down this road and you think you know what's going to happen and then boom, it just hangs a right turn and, and goes somewhere that you weren't even expecting. Like I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Shawshank Redemption that kind of leads you down this path and it's got one of the best endings I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, it just takes a hard turn and, and it just pulls the rug out from underneath you. I love when a movie does that. There's a movie in particular that I'm thinking of that I want to share with you. It is the 1984 classic, the OG, the original Karate Kid. I don't know if you've ever seen this old school movie. It is an oldie but a moldy. It's a good one, man. It's a great old flick. Um, the scene that I'm thinking of, I'm, I'm going to spoil it for you, all right? If you haven't seen the movie, spoiler alert, uh, in my defense, you have had 35 years to see this movie, all right? Uh, there's been a lot of time. Here's the scene that I'm thinking of. I'll give you the backstory. Daniel LaRusso, the main character, has moved from the East Coast out to the West Coast. And there's an instance where he gets jumped by a bunch of guys from the Cobra Kai Dojo. And out of nowhere, this mysterious man named Mr. Miyagi jumps in and defends Daniel. And Daniel's blown away that this guy has so much karate capability, that his skills are so off the chart. He, he asks him, can you train me to do what you do? That was unbelievable. And Mr. Miyagi's a little bit reluctant at first, but eventually he agrees to train Daniel. Daniel shows up for his first day of training, and Mr. Miyagi says to him, you and I are going to make a sacred pact. I will teach you karate, but you have to do whatever I ask, whenever I ask, and, and you must not question, you must not doubt anything that I tell you. And he puts the bandana on Daniel's head, and Daniel goes, yes, like I'll do it. Yeah, I agree, sounds good. Mr. Miyagi says, good. Then he hands him a rag and a sponge and says, wash all of my cars. He's got like eight cars. I want you to wash and wax my cars. So he spends the next five, six hours washing and waxing all of these cars. And then Mr. Miyagi sends him home, says, come back tomorrow. So Daniel shows up for his second day of training. He's like, all right, maybe today's the day. We're going to learn some karate. Mr. Miyagi says, I want you to sand all of this flooring. He's got a huge stretch of flooring. I want you to sand the floor. And so for the next seven to eight hours, Daniel's out there sanding the floor to the point where like his shoulders are cramping, he's sore. Mr. Miyagi says, come back tomorrow. Daniel shows up for day three. All right, maybe today's the day. We're gonna learn some karate today. Throw some punches, throw some kicks. Today's the day. Mr. Miyagi says, you're gonna paint the entire side of my house, all of my house. Paints for six, seven hours. Day four, Daniel shows up for his training. Maybe today's the day. We're gonna throw some punches, throw some kicks, learn some karate. Mr. Miyagi says, you're gonna paint all of my fence, 
the whole fencing around his house. And by the end of day four, Daniel just explodes. He explodes on Mr. Miyagi. This is ridiculous. You're not teaching me any karate. You've turned me into your slave to just do all your house projects. Forget this, man. I'm out of here. And Mr. Miyagi goes, Daniel-san. <laughs> it's the best part of the whole sermon, that, that shot right there. <laughs> Daniel-san, not everything as it seems. And then he has him come forward. He says, look at me. Look in my eyes. Show me wax on, wax off. Show me sand the floor. And he goes through all these moves. Show me paint the fence. Show me paint the house. And then he asks him one more time, show me wax on. And then out of nowhere, Mr. Miyagi lets out this visceral scream. Ah! And just starts throwing all these punches at Daniel. And Daniel starts blocking them. He starts throwing kicks, punches, all these different combinations. And Daniel's just blocking them every single which way. And it dawns on my little 12-year-old brain, Oh my goodness, Mr. Miyagi was training him the whole time. This dude is a legend. And I right after that was like, Dad, can I borrow some car wax? Out there polishing my dad's hood like, I wish somebody would try and punch me right now. Your boy is trained up. Now, why do I tell you this? The truth that's waiting for us the truth that is in 1 Peter 4 today is difficult. It is going to grind against your sensibilities. It is going to grind against your instinct for self-preservation and your instinct for comfort. And, and if we're going to have any hope of internalizing what the word of God has to say today, you and I first have to know that God works a little bit like Mr. Miyagi. He's not going to train us the way that we think he might train us. Because whether we would vocalize it or not, I think subconsciously, unconsciously, we just kind of expect to grow in our holiness, grow in our maturity by like going to church. Maybe we'll join a life group. Maybe we'll serve a little bit. Maybe we'll even do like a little devotional in the morning. We'll have our cup of coffee and a candlelit Bible, journal, pen. Take a picture for Instagram because it doesn't count unless you put it on Instagram. Look at how holy I am. And we think that's the stuff that's going to mature us. Hear me. That stuff absolutely is good and right. I'm not knocking it. It's good, right, and godly. However, as you start to read through the Bible, you're going to find God employs a very specific tool to mature and grow his sons and daughters to godliness. And do you know what that tool is? Suffering. Suffering. So here's what I want to do. I want to read what 1 Peter has to say. We're going to pray because, oh my goodness, do we need help? And then after that, I want to lay out some fair expectations, some fair expectations for us before we dive headfirst into our text. So would you stand with me as we read? I just want to let Peter speak for himself here, let the word of God speak for himself. We'll pick it up, verse four, or I'm sorry, chapter four, verse one through six. Here's how one begins. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, 
so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Sounds like college. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for these men and women here. I want to thank you, Lord, for all of these souls. Lord, these are our souls, eternal beings. They're souls, God, that you've fashioned and created. You've known them before the foundation of the earth was laid, God. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us. God, we are so going to need your help today. We do not have the capacity in our, our fleshly, earthly nature to grasp onto this truth, to internalize this well. So please, Spirit, by your grace, help us. And I pray these things in your wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, the famous actress, Kristen Bell, she was on a, a podcast with her husband. And she was explaining that she has a grid. She's got two criteria that she filters every decision through. And the criteria look like this. She makes every decision based on, will this decision maximize my happiness and will it minimize my suffering? And I remember hearing this going, that's pretty much how all of us think, right? I think all of us are, are trying to figure out how can we maximize joy, maximize happiness and minimize suffering. Now, I say most of us because there's a small subset of people that just seem to enjoy being bummed out all the time. Like if they have like the Eeyore disease, they're just constantly like just moping and, and even when things are good, they just seem to find the negative in life. Uh, I don't have time to handle all the intricacies of that, uh, but I think for most of us, what we're trying to do is keep suffering at bay. We want to do all we can to push suffering away, make life easy, keep suffering far, and here comes the Bible. And the Bible's not only going to speak about suffering, it is going to value and esteem suffering. Every single chapter in 1 Peter has at least one verse where suffering is esteemed and glorified. And that's just this one epistle. I mean, there are so many examples in the Bible we could go to. We could go to James chapter 1. James 1, verse 2, it says, Count it pure joy, my brothers, when you go through trials of many kinds. Romans 5 says that we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces character. Character produces endurance, and endurance produces hope, and hope will not fail us. It's not just a New Testament idea. It's in the Old Testament all over the place. A little sneaky verse in Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119, 71, it says, it was good for me to be afflicted. It was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. 
this truth in the Bible is going to challenge us. So what are some fair expectations? I do not expect you to go skipping out of here today being like, man, I can't wait to bleed for Jesus. I can't wait to suffer. This is going to be awesome. Let's get some lunch, man. Let's talk about Jesus and how we're just going to suffer and be miserable for him. I don't expect that to happen. I don't even expect at the outset, at the beginning, for you to necessarily like what you're going to hear. Because if you're anything like me, this truth, this text today, is going to bring to the surface some low-grade idolatry that's been hiding in the corners of your heart. And it's not very pleasant. Now, I hope by the Spirit's grace, you might start to see the wisdom of God's word. What I think is a fair expectation is that we might learn to suffer the way Jesus suffered. What do I mean by that? In the book of Hebrews, we see that Jesus, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. So Jesus had this eagerness. He had a joy that was a part of his experience of suffering. That's pretty crazy. However, you want to know what else we see in Jesus' life? Was he not in the Garden of Gethsemane pleading with the Father that if there's any way for him to remove this, please remove it? Did Jesus not cry out to the Father, if there's any other way, please remove this cup from me? Was he not so riddled with stress and anticipation that his heart rate and blood pressure had gone so high, it broke the capillaries open in his scalp and forehead and blood was coming out of his sweat glands? So yes, he joyfully endured the cross, but yes, he felt all of the fear. He felt all of the trepidation that it would entail. And I think that's a pretty fair expectation for us. My hope is that in due time, by the Spirit's grace, you and I would get to the point where we can resolve we are going to suffer for the name of Christ. But should it come, we might be afraid. We will resolve, yes, I will suffer for your name, Christ, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be bulletproof. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to have doubts and I'm not going to second guess it and I'm not going to have my knees shake and my heart race if that moment comes. Because if that's how Jesus responded, I think it's pretty fair to expect and then that's what we should be shooting for. So the question in your notes I want to pose to you, how do we prepare ourselves to suffer? How do we prepare ourselves to suffer for Christ's sake? There's four truths I want to pull out of our text today. Truth number one says this. We need to know that we have to arm ourselves with the same view of suffering that Christ had. Here's how the text reads, verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourself, prepare yourself, literally get the weapon strapped onto your hip, get ready, be ready for battle, prepare yourself with the same way of thinking. Now when the text says here that Jesus suffered, what it's referring to is his death. If you look back at chapter 3 verse 18, that word suffered is being referred to Christ's death on the cross. This is what we call in Christianity the gospel. 
Gospel means good news. For us, it is very, very good news, tragic as it may be, that Christ went to the cross and died for us. Because what he accomplished in doing that is reconciling you and I back to the Father. Because of our own rebellion, because of our own trespasses against God Almighty, there is a cosmic separation between us and him. We stand guilty as charged without Jesus. Jesus comes down to bear our punishment, bear our condemnation, and he extends to those that believe his righteousness, his forgiveness. The slate is wiped clean. There is a huge misconception in Christianity that we are reconciled to God by us being more moral, by us behaving better, by us self-controlling better. We somehow start to think and trick ourselves, well, I haven't cussed in four days. That must mean I'm in better standing with the Lord. Well, I've strung together some church attendance. I give to the Lord. I serve in my local charity. Surely that's garnering me favor with God. And the Bible is going to say your morality on your best day, your righteousness on your best day is laughable before God. It is junior varsity peewee league. In fact, it'll go so far to say it's an offensive stench in his nostrils. You on your best day, God scoffs at your pathetic morality. We are reconciled to the Father because Christ died for us, or we are not reconciled to the Father. What I love about the gospel is that it humbles the religiously proud and it elevates the weak and tired sinner. It reminds the religiously proud, hey, you're not all that you think you are. You think you're so good and worthy because you're stringing together some obedience. You couldn't do that obedience without the Lord's help to begin with. No, no, no. be reminded you're only reconciled to God because Christ has been gracious. And then for the weary, tired sinner, how good of news is this? For those that have been dragged through the desert of sin, the gospel's like a cold bottle of water. Come, sinner, be reconciled, free of charge, no penalty, regardless of what has happened in your past, regardless of what has transpired, for all the sin and all the rebellion you have done, for all the times you have flipped God the bird and gone the other way, you can be reconciled by the blood of Christ. It's a wonderful invitation. Peter's saying, We need to think about our suffering the way Christ saw his suffering. Well, how did Christ see his suffering? Check this out. Jesus knew that his suffering would be the single greatest blow to sin ever. Jesus knew my death on the cross is going to be a bullet in the brain to sin. It is going to put sin out. I love how paradoxical God works. I love this. You'll see it all through the Bible. God is very paradoxical. He does things that that don't make sense, but they kind of make sense. Here's what I mean. How did he bring eternal life to billions of believers? Through his death. He has brought life through his death. You see how that's kind of paradoxical? In the Gospels, Jesus will say, if you want to lose your life, try and keep it. Try and hold on to it. You want your life to spiral out of control, you be the boss of it. On the flip side, you want to find your life? Give it over for my sake. Lose it for my sake. Romans 6, Paul talks about freedom, what true freedom looks like. 
He says, if you want to really be free, enslave yourself to righteousness. That's where freedom is. Because church, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be enslaved to something. You will either be enslaved to your own sinful folly, or you'll be enslaved to the righteousness of Christ that leads to life and peace. Choice is yours. Jesus knew my death on the cross is going to be the right hook to the jaw of sin. I oftentimes wonder how much, like how much did Satan celebrate on that Friday when Christ died? Like, do you think he, he got all the homies together, busted out the cigars and brandy? He's like, hey guys, we got him. We killed him. And then I wonder when Sunday came around, how bad did Satan poo his pants when he saw Jesus come back from the dead? Do you think the gravity set in? Do you think he realized Jesus just beat me at my own game? Jesus just took all the teeth and the bite out of condemnation that I had power with. He has defanged me. I have no more condemnation I can wield against his children. I have no more accusation to lobby against them. The Lamb of God has set him free. Do you think he understood what he had done? <laughs> Christ knew my death on the cross is going to hamstring, is going to annihilate sin. And Peter says we have to have the same mentality. So what does that mean? Follow me here. We have to know that for our sin, when we suffer for Christ's sake, it is a massive blow to our own sin. When you and I suffer for Christ's sake, in the same way Jesus decimated sin, when we suffer for Jesus, it's a personal blow to our own sin. It kills sin in our life. It teaches us obedience. I'll show you how it reads in 1 Peter, middle of verse 1. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, I need to tell you that there's two different kinds of suffering. There's circumstantial suffering, and then there's suffering for Christ's sake. Circumstantial suffering is the fact that we live in a Genesis 3 world. This is where, where we see sin run its full course of infection. It, it, it just tarnishes everything. It's why we get cancer. It's why people get sick and die. Jobs are lost. Marriages fall apart. There's infertility. Kids go wayward. All of the horrible cards that life will deal us are a result of us living in a Genesis 3 sin-infected world. That's circumstantial suffering. What Peter's speaking about here is suffering for Christ's sake. It's when you and I, as believers in Jesus, make a stand to follow Jesus over following the way of the world. We say, no, I'm going to follow Christ, even though everything in the world is calling me to go this way. I'm going this way. Now you need to hear me, this does not mean being obnoxious for Jesus. Suffering for Christ does not mean being obnoxious for Jesus. It doesn't mean you go around all over the place Bible thumping people. It doesn't mean just because everyone hates you at work that you're suffering for Christ. It might just mean that you're a jerk at work. Because <laughs> Peter already told us in chapter three, when you share the reason for the hope that you have, you do so with gentleness and respect. You don't go up to poor Bill at work who didn't pray for his chow mein and you take that and be like, you didn't pray. You're welcome. 
see the difference? No, suffering for Christ is when, when the government tries to say, you can't preach about Jesus, we'll throw you in jail if you preach about that name, Jesus of Nazareth. We respectfully say, you judge for yourself what's right, I'm gonna keep talking about Jesus. It's when your boss says, hey, we need to hide some money and we need to do some unethical things with our finances. You go, no, 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 I cannot do that. In fact, I might need to expose you. Knowing that it it may mean I lose my job. It may put my financial security in jeopardy. I have to follow the Lord, though. That's suffering for Christ. Now, he says here, when we suffer for Christ, our sin ceases. <laughs> That's a crazy verse. It means our sin starts to stop. Okay, well, what does that really mean? I, I want to tell you there's a, a present implication of that and a future implication. Let me tell you about the present implication here. In your notes, it teaches us obedience while we're still living in the flesh. It teaches us obedience while we're still here encased in this body. This is what verse 2 says. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh... No longer for passions, but for the will of God. So what he's saying here is this is going to teach you. This is going to teach you how to walk closer with the Lord while you're still here in this body. The way that this was explained to me, and hopefully it's helpful to you. I always struggled with how could we be perfectly forgiven in Christ, but yet the Bible calls us to obey him. That that was always hard for me to understand. If we're perfectly forgiven, why do we have to obey The way it was explained to me helped me out. Theologians will say that when you and I are forgiven, when you and I place our faith in Jesus, we receive what's called positional holiness. We receive a positional righteousness before God the Father. Because of what Jesus has done, you and I are positionally perfect. We are positionally holy, free from sin, free from condemnation, above reproach. Practically, though, our practical righteous in our day-to-day life still leaves a lot to be desired. So for the believer, the moment they come to know Jesus, positionally perfect in Christ before the Father, God is going to start moving our practical righteousness step by step, inch by inch, closer and closer to line up with our positional holiness in Christ. Someone said it like this once, the process of maturing in Jesus is us becoming who we already are. Follow me on that? It's us becoming who God already sees us as. We've already been described as being perfect and holy. Now he's just gonna practically get us closer to there. And suffering is one of God's best tools to train us in that. That's the present implication. I said that there's a future implication as well. The future implication is this here in your notes. Ultimately, ultimately, we will be glorified in heaven. See, I want to touch on this. It says that it's God's, we said we're going to learn how to follow God's will. Verse 2, to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. People always ask me, what is the will of God? 1 Thessalonians 4 says it is God's will we be sanctified. It's God's will that you and I grow in our sanctification. This is the process of us becoming more like Jesus, of us practically learning how to live out our positional righteousness. 
In the future, though, in the future, this verse has a real heavy future implication to it. Peter's trying to say some of you may suffer unto the point of death. You may suffer in the same way that Jesus did unto the point of death. When you and I die as believers in Christ, all that happens is we are liberated from the shackles of this flesh. We are liberated from the sinful cravings of this flesh, and we will be greeted in heaven by the most sweet, wonderful words we have ever heard. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. We will inherit heavenly bodies that will never sin, will never grow tired, will never get weak. We will, by our own free will, by our own volition, freely choose to love, worship, and obey God for all of eternity. We will ever increase in our delight and in our worship of God Almighty. This is what Peter's saying. He's like, listen, man, Suffering's going to teach you how to walk more with God in the flesh, but should suffering go so far to the point that you die, all it's going to do is liberate you from the sinful flesh, and you will perfectly walk in obedience when you're glorified in heaven. So his point here is kind of like, hey, I know suffering's painful, but it's going to help you. I know suffering's painful, we'll say it like this, but it's going to lead you into deeper joy and peace. I'm going to share with you a bit of wisdom that has, has stuck in my brain for a long time. I wish I knew it years ago, but I didn't. I'm going to share it with you. I've shared it up here before. Lord willing, I'll share it up with here. I'll share it up here as, as many times as God would have me teach from this platform. Here's what I have learned. The more I obey Jesus, the more joy and the more peace I will find. Even when it costs me. Even when it's painful up front. My joy and my peace is directly correlated to how I am walking in obedience. The more I submit my life to the scriptures, the more joy, the more peace that I find. John Piper calls this Christian hedonism. He says you want to experience true joy, pleasure, true peace? Submit your life to the scriptures. You see the paradox? See it? Freedom in our enslavement to Jesus. Let's not pretend. Suffering is brutal. Let's not pretend. Suffering sucks. It's miserable. Will it teach us how to obey God more? Mm -hmm. That's what it's designed to. And in that deeper obedience, are we going to find more joy and peace? Yes. Yes, we will. It's the strangest phenomena. You talk to any Christian that has suffered well, and they will tell you something like this. They will say, I don't ever want to go through that again. I cried harder than I thought I could cry, and my heart shattered into more pieces than I thought it would shatter into, but I'd never been closer to the Lord. But I found a strange peace and comfort in the midst of it all. The third truth that we need to know. In your notes, we'll say it this way. Know that when we experience suffering, we will be tempted to romanticize our past sin. 
I love that this verse follows. I love that Peter gets real heavy in one and two, and then three comes, and he's like, hey, hey, guys, I get it. I get it. I've been there. I know what you're going to go through. Peter's expecting us to go, man, we're under the gun of suffering. It would just be so much easier if we could go back to our old sin. It'd be so much easier if we could just go drink again, go party again. Look at what he says here in verse three. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Our junior high pastor here had a really cool insight. He's like, it's interesting that, that those verses, that those sins rather, are mentioned in those verses. It seems like those are the things that we turn to when we're suffering, right? Booze and sex. <laughs> Booze and sex, that's what we turn to when we're suffering. And Peter's like, hey, the time is past that suffices. What does that mean? It means, hey, you've had your fill already. You've had your fill already. You've drank enough. You've partied enough. You've slept around enough. You know that it doesn't bring you what you're looking for. That's our next point. Peter's trying to tell us, remember, remember that your past sin never brought you the joy. It never brought you the peace that you were hoping for. How many times do we have to feel sin lie to us, promise that it's going to give us everything we're hoping for, only to find it let us down? Sin is notorious for doing this, promising to give us the world, only to leave us more hollow than when we started. The Bible says what about sin? The wages of sin is what? What's that? It's death. The wages of sin is death. Sin is very temporarily fun. <laughs> Straight with you, it's fun. Very temporarily fun. Leaves in its wake a carnage of bad decisions, regrets, scars. I mean, it just leaves horrible pain behind you. So he's like, hey, I know you're under the gun. I know you're suffering for Christ. Don't think that if you go back to your old sin, it's going to fill you. Don't think that going back to your old sin is going to make your life any easier. Because then he says this as well. Follow me here in your notes. Remember that all of those people that are persecuting you for Christ's sake, they're going to have to give an account. Remember, all the insults you receive for Christ's sake, it'll be accounted for. Look at what 4 and 5 says. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They can't believe that you won't just give in to this unchecked, unbridled self-indulgence. They can't believe you won't do it. Verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So they give you a hard time. They hassle you. They make fun of you. They bust your chops about it. They malign you, the Bible says. But there's a day coming when they're going to stand before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ himself. And I don't know if you've read in Revelation where this throne is described or this judgment takes place, but it is terrifyingly holy. There is no unrepentant sin that will not be accounted for by the judge of all the earth. So Peter's like, hey man, your heart should actually break for them. They're busting your chops. They know not what they do. They're making fun of you because you don't go out and party with them like you used to. 
they betrayed your friendship and it hurts, you need to know there's going to be a day they have to give an account for that should they go unrepentant and your heart should break. Now the fourth and final truth I want to share for you. To prepare us to suffer says this, we need to know that death comes for all, but we have the hope of life everlasting. Verse six reads in this way. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Uh, That's a confusing verse for a lot of people. For some people think that verse means there's like a second chance after you die to repent. That's not what the text is saying. Um, It's referring to people that were alive when Peter was alive, and they have since died. The the argument the Gentiles made was, hey, you Christians die just like we die. You guys die just like we die. Why wouldn't we go out and party? Why wouldn't we go out and have fun? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Peter's going, no, you're not seeing the whole picture here. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, that means even though they die just like everyone dies, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Peter goes, listen, we live for the king because we know there's eternity in front of us. We know that this life here is a blip on the radar. There is eternity waiting for us. And I need to share this with you. Peter did not write about this just theoretically. Peter didn't just put this down in his epistle because he thought it sounded theologically articulate. A lot of people know about Peter's death. If you hang around church circles, you will hear oftentimes how Peter was killed. Uh, Church history teaches that he was crucified upside down. There's some debate about whether that really happened. What we do know for sure is that he was crucified. What rarely gets talked about when it comes to Peter's death is the fact that Peter was married for years. He was faithful to his wife, and before his crucifixion, his wife is brought in before him. And the Roman tribunal says, if you do not recant your statement on Jesus as Lord of all, we are going to kill your wife in front of you. And do you know what Peter says? He looks his wife in the eyes and says, remember the Lord. And then watches her get dragged out to be crucified. And then they kill him next. How do you do that? How on earth do you muster up the strength to do that? It seemed to me both Peter and his wife were dialed into a very important truth that you and I must be dialed into. In your notes, we've got to be dialed into the truth that death is gain. For the believer, death is is gain. I am just as guilty as all of us of getting so caught up in the here and now. Getting so caught up with the flashiness of this world, infatuated with all the trinkets and the allurements of this world. What's waiting for us in eternity so far surpasses any goodness or any suffering we might find in this world. Does that fix the pain of suffering? No. It's cold comfort when you're suffering. But it edifies my heart to know the man that wrote these words, he wasn't just talking. He really did hope in the life that's to come. Philippians chapter one, one of the most powerful verses in the Bible says this. 
for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I've been thinking a lot about how do I wrap this sermon up. This is a heavy sermon. Um, I don't know a better way for us to wrap this up than to just take some time to be with the Lord. Uh, I'm going to invite Elizabeth up. She's going to come and and play on the keys a little bit. Just give us a little background music. You'll see her come out. And and what I want to do is just give you 30, 40 seconds to take some time to be with Jesus. Take some time to talk to him, to pray. Uh, What this text has revealed in my own heart is that I idolize comfort far too much. And so I don't know what it's been doing in your heart, but I want to just give you now 30, 40 seconds to talk to God, and then I'll close our time in prayer. Jesus, I want to thank you that you are not calling us to anything that you yourself have not already walked in. Thank you for suffering for us. Thank you that you are a near and present help when we are in trouble. Lord, I just confess that I far, I'm far too infatuated with comfort. Help me. Help me, Lord. I, I want to be ready, God, to suffer should you call me to that. I know I might be filled with fear, Lord. I know I might be filled with trepidation, but give me by your spirit, Lord, the strength. And I pray the same thing for my friends here. Help us, God. For those that are in the throes of suffering right now, Lord, neck deep in it, I pray, God, that you'd give them rest, that you meet them. And as I said earlier, Lord, we just need your help. There's no way. No way we're going to internalize this by our own strength. This is repulsive in the flesh. So Spirit, give us wisdom to see that suffering, although painful, has its good and right place. We love you, Lord. Can't wait to see you. Can't wait to be with you. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey, before we dismiss you, I just want to let you know, off to my left, your right, these doors here, there's a little area to receive prayer, to talk with people. If you are going through it, man, you're just, life's just reared up and kicked you in the stomach. Uh, There's people back there to talk. There's people back there to, to be with you, to minister to you. Check that out on your way out. We love you all. Pastor Jeremy's got a great message next week. It, it's really part two, and, and part two is a lot easier to swallow than what we just went through, all right? If you can handle this, you can handle anything. So come back, check it out next week. We love you guys. Have a great Veterans Day. God bless.